0: Hey, folks welcome back to the show uh, today we're gonna be following up on the conversation that we started with jane Herman about JuliaCon 2020 we have nate and malham today and they're gonna be discussing what i originally thought was something of an application of ai to data science and using julia for a data science project but actually upon clarification it's much more software oriented and a bit of a deviation where it's a it's a technical challenge that many people might be trying to solve for example, with like uh, C language or Rust or something like that. and But instead they're using Julia for it. And I thought that was interesting and it can really spur a lot of good conversations. So again, it just shows that um, you can get something wrong and still learn a lot. Um, so I will be serving as that sort of, I guess,
1: uh,
0: intellectual whipping boy today as I get my, uh, my, my perspective changed on this. So uh, welcome both of you. Uh, maybe Thanks. we could be, yeah, maybe uh, we should begin with, uh, you each introduce yourself. I'll uh, we'll start with Moham and um, just your, your, your general background area, and then we'll get into a bit more of the uh, technical specifics.
2: Sure. I'm uh, Moham Arif. Uh, I'm the CEO of Relational AI. I'm an uh, engineer by education. I've been doing uh, machine learning and, and AI-type stuff uh, for almost 30 years, uh, but mostly in an enterprise context, You know, working with uh, big companies and helping them solve uh, supply chain problems or Fraud problems or uh, wireless network optimization problems and things like that.
1: And uh, I'm Nathan uh, Nathan Daly. I've been um, a software engineer at Relational AI for uh, just under two years. Um, I actually we met at JuliaCon uh, two years ago, and um, so uh, uh, JuliaCon's been a great place for for making connections with lots of people in the Julia community, and um, that's that's how I wound up here. And I'm uh, at Relational AI. I'm I'm. Uh, helping to work on building the database product that we're we're building here.
0: Cool. Before we go into the technical details, maybe Malham, you could tell us a bit about um, the application background to this so we can sort of get our bearings straight.
2: Sure. Uh, So having uh, been exposed to this problem, this class of problems for a long time, and having had to use the traditional tools that are available in terms of traditional databases, traditional programming languages, traditional uh, tools for analytics, for machine learning, uh, and data management, and data transfer. Uh, So over the years, we realized that the process is just too hard and too complex. The problem doesn't really stop uh, when you're finished building the model, because that model typically has to be deployed in a way that a business can use. So it's not enough to have a model that can tell you fraud or no fraud. That model needs to be deployed in in an overall system that plugs into the machinery that uh, you use when you use your credit card that scores every credit card transaction that can flag each transaction as likely to be fraudulent or not. And if it's likely to be fraudulent, it needs to direct the transaction to some workflow where there's some banker uh, looking at the, the file that comes up and looks at it and says, Yeah, this is a fraud. We want to stop this transaction. Or we're not sure, but this is a really important customer. Uh, so, anyways, the, 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 there's a lot of complexity in the whole process. And uh, we feel like uh, uh, the system that we're building is going to remove a lot of that complexity. And uh, we, we love having Julia as a foundation for what we're building because Julia makes the system that we're building easier to build. So uh, uh, simplicity uh, is hard to achieve, as we all know. And so having Julia as a foundation keeps our system simple which means that the system that we provide our clients is also very simple, fewer moving parts, uh, a lot less things to worry about. So that's at a high level what we're doing.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. And I guess, because one of the things I think has really interested me as I've gone into more of the industrial role and uh, gone from sort of the academic research into more of a industrial setting is uh, there's this sort of this, I, I call it sort of like full stack data science, where typically a lot of the research And the model building happens in in one sort of very specified confined domain or space, but there's this sort of full stack of technologies that are necessary to actually make sure that this thing gets deployed and used optimally. And then also uh, to how to track how people are actually using it. So there's a large number of issues, you know, just the ergonomics of making use of a model, making, seeing how people are interfacing with it and things like that. And then not to mention the challenges of making sure that something being that once it's been deployed that it's staying relevant and useful and things like that so you know the idea that models can deviate in time for what their intended purpose was uh what their intended or sort of estimated performance things like that um so i think that this is really interesting and actually it's something that on the series we're going to be trying to cover starting in uh next year in 2021 on full stack data science so maybe be cool to have you guys back on to discuss that further um but so um Maybe uh Nathan, you could tell us a little bit more about sort of the traditional technical approaches to resolving this problem, and then why Julia is offering you sort of an attractive uh tech stack yeah. to solve this yeah
1: yeah happily um so yeah, uh like Mohammed was just saying we're um are the the product that we're building is ultimately going to it is a cloud deployed um uh, database and and knowledge graph management system. Um, so users interact with our system uh, by by uploading their data um, or making their data available to our cloud database, um, and then uh, writing complex uh, programs and, and queries that can uh, take advantage of that data and and learn or or derive useful, inter- interesting, actionable uh, uh, results from from that data. And so. Um, the The sort of the, the technical components of that like from our end are we have to build a web server that can handle requests from users we have to build a, uh, a an entire database management system, which is a very non-trivial task that in, in software engineering is um, uh, databases are really interesting I guess they um, they hit a lot of the the sort of interesting things in computer science are they they're sort of all ticked in a database management system, so we have to have We have to have really good control over our access to reading and writing from disk. Uh, We have to have really good access to transferring data over the network. It's a big distributed computing problem when when your queries get too large and and you have these complex um, uh, uh, operations you wanna do. How can you shuffle that across many machines? Um, And there are also really interesting compiler and language optimization problems because um, the user specifies what they wanna compute in a a query um, where you say like, I want to get all the, the information from my database that matches some criteria, but there are many different ways in which you could actually go about doing that process. Um, we, this is like translating the user's declarative uh, language uh, specification for their, for their uh, query into an imp- imperative program that we then execute. And so there's all these very interesting challenges. And uh, so traditionally, of course, database management systems are built in traditional computer science language, uh, software engineering languages like C, C++, Java, uh, C sharp maybe, um, and uh, more recently, I think the, the trend is moving towards things like Rust, where there um, these these emphasis on static uh, static compiling and um, and safety and, and 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 a higher level language um, facilities. So this is definitely I think abnormal to 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 take on a project like this in Julia, but actually Julia is really attractive to us for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, so I think uh, um, there are sort of like maybe three separate tracks that you could talk about for why it's attractive to us. Um, but I would say the, um, the, the main one is what Moham said, which is that it's just a very nice, friendly, uh, high level language to, to, to write in. So it's just, it's just productive. It's easy to write Julia code. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a nice attractive, simple language to express very complex ideas in and, um, and it think, uh, based on some clever design decisions in Julia, you can write the same kind of high level code you might write in Python or MATLAB, um, but it's able to, by taking advantage of the static typing, the dynamic static, sorry, by taking advantage of the static type information at runtime dynamically, uh, it's able to still on the fly, compile your code down to very efficient uh, machine code in the same way that C++ or Rust would do. So um, you sort of get a lot of these benefits of writing in a high level language like you would in Python, Um, that just makes it easier to program and easier to reason about your code uh, while not having to sacrifice the speed benefits that you get from these traditional statically typed languages. And so I think that's been the main, I would say that's the main driver of why we settled on Julia is that it's uh, among all the other options we tried, it's just the most productive. Um, And then the other two are a little more technical, but um, I think the one that- Actually, before you
0: go into those two, because uh, this actually, this reminded me of a conversation that I've been having with a number of people, especially um, about essentially understanding what language you're going to be using for your data munging processes and things like that, Um, organizing your data uh, and things like that. Because obviously there are a lot of older technologies that are extremely capable in their own rights for specified tasks and things like that but one thing that I've always been trying to sort out in my head and I say I'm trying to sort out because I lack certain of the technical expertise on some of those, uh, on those more computer sciencey aspects um, about, you know, uh, database processes and things like that. But um, one of the sort of challenges I see is that people basically are wanting to do more complex interactions with their databases. Um, They are wanting to sort of engage with their databases in these more, I guess, downstream data sort of interactions and processes. And by working with the sort of, I guess, just to choose a little bit of a, um, we could call it a whipping boy, so to say, like a, a, a SQL query and people want to do a lot of things just, just in SQL where, yeah, SQL is actually an extremely good language. No, no one should beat up on it because it is it is impressively like, Capable at certain tasks, um, but there's also issues where um, when people are trying to, for example, do a lot of analysis or further data management in SQL, that they can you can actually lose transparency about what's being done in the data, and particularly as the data sets are not as consistent. Um, so, for example, say you have a data set that's created on one purpose, and then you have a 95% similar data set on another one. That 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 extra five percent. By losing transparency via, um, for example, the language that you're using, you could actually start creating data errors down the line that you're not aware of. And while well, I realize that this isn't explicitly, um, or may- maybe this is part of the issue that you're dealing with, that there, there's an element where, for example, um, you might actually be more comfortable doing your data munging in, um, in a language like Python because it's a bit more transparent um, and you're willing to take that performance hit. And it sounds like... By working in Julia, you're able to have that sort of that higher level of transparency, that higher level of complexity without losing the actual performance, too. Is, is that sort of uh, the issue or one of the issues here?
1: Yeah, I. Yes, I think there's like so many things we could talk about. And I I, I totally love the idea of having us back one day uh, in the future to dig more into um, uh, uh, working with data at scale in industry, because even this problem that you just described, I think, is actually. Very much on our roadmap um, of of uh, um, a, a, so so. Actually, one of the things that we're building here is a is a, uh, a part of our database management system. Is we're building a new uh, query language, a, new, a programming language, um, which uh, you could use in addition to or instead of SQL for uh, writing your queries over over your data. And we think it actually addresses maybe a lot of those concerns you are having in that uh, this language that we're building internally is. Itself as powerful as Python or Julia. Um, uh, it's a full Turing-complete um, computation language, uh, so it, it maybe gives you some of those. So, so with, with the goal being exactly like you said, so that you don't have to switch in between all these different complexities in your stack, like Malan was talking about. So, you, you know, you want to use the fast database for doing this part of the thing, but but then you make you lose these trade-offs, and now you have to go and do this. You, you pre-process your data in Python first because you know how to how to, you know, you have libraries in Python that you can, that you can use and you can, um, you get more control over, over the kinds of things you're doing. And once you're done, you load it into your database and now you can use the power and the speed of your database, which has been highly tuned for the complex types of, uh, of, of operations you're doing. Um, we don't like that either because, uh, like you said, it's, it's, it's a complex system. It's, it's, uh, too many moving parts. It's, it's fragile. Um, you, you, what, you know, you, Little data problems can creep in, et cetera, et cetera. So the, uh, the query language that we're building, the programming language that we're building internally at Relational AI, um, it, it, it bridges this gap in that it's the same language that you can use for doing these queries that are, that are going to be really fast uh, and, and, and highly tuned. But you can also do your data munching and your operations on them um, all in the same system. And the reason that this works is actually the same reason that it works in Julia. And so now I can go back and answer your question. Um, so both because we're built on top of Julia, but also because the work that we're doing uh, just, just works with the same principles that Julia is built on top of, um, we, we get the exact same benefits. And the reason for that is that um, we are, there is nothing um, special cased in our database uh, management system. So in something like Python, if, um, you, you, want, you get the high level language of Python, which is really friendly, um, but it's slow. And it's a known thing. Uh, so what people do to make Python usable and fast is they take the parts of your system that are the, the core of your computation, the, the, the hot loop, the, the, the main bulk of what you're actually doing, and they work really hard to make that fast. So um, you, for example, NumPy is a library that's built in C++ or C, and it's statically compiled, and it gives you a set of operations that have been highly tuned for the specific tasks that you want to do with that, uh, uh, with that library. Um, and so in Python, you do the high-level connection of the the fluid parts that NumPy wasn't able to to give you uh, uh, operations for because they didn't know in advance what your problems might be, and so you use a dynamic language to to meet whatever your problems might be at runtime. And once you're done and you're ready, then you can hand that over to NumPy or, like you were saying, hand it over to your SQL database system, both of which are very specialized for the very specific thing that they do, and they do it fast. Um, The problem is, of course, when the thing that you want to do You also have to do it on a large scale and there isn't a pre-compiled pre-computed operation for it in NumPy or in your, or, or in SQL, SQL doesn't have the ability to, to have the insight into, into these things like you're talking about. So the way that Julia tackles this problem is that there is no difference between these highly optimized core nuggets and the high flexible high level language. Um, basically they made a bunch of design decisions in Julia, which, um, which are you know easier to see in retrospect, that um, um, that allow the compiler to turn arbitrary high-level Julia functions into the highly specialized compiled code that NumPy would do. So basically, um, Julia's Julia's trick here is it is it is it um, bundles LLVM, which is a compiler which compiles. Um, code from whatever c++ or whatever high level language you write it in down to machine code that operation is normally done ahead of time like in c++ you write your c++ code then you compile it and then you get a machine program and you execute that program Uh, the compiler is actually bundled as part of Julia's runtime and so um, when you're about to execute some code only at the very last minute when you're finally about to do that hot loop and you have all the context that you need you know in what context it's going to be used you know what the types are going to be Um, You know what the output is going to be going into, right at that moment, you compile everything, uh, and then you execute it. And so what you end up with is you still execute little tiny kernels, um, just like you would do in NumPy. You execute this little tiny kernel uh, for the operation you want to do, and then you ship it. In this case, you're still pre-compiling little tiny kernels and executing them, but you delay that decision to generate that kernel until the very last minute when you have all the information and uh, that allows you to get just as fast code as you would have get, gotten um, by writing it ahead of time in C++, but you get it for your specific problem at runtime in Julia. And so this is, this is um, uh, they call it just ahead of time compilation because it's, it's, uh, it's ahead of time compiled in the same way that C++ is ahead of time compiled, but it's done at runtime just before you use it in the same way a traditional JIT compiler would do. And so this, um, this is also called, in the programming languages world, this is called specialization, um, runtime specialization. Um, and it's really neat. So uh, uh, it, it gives you the ability to write very flexible, high-level language, um, but, but still see the, 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 the fast performance uh, times that you would get in, in something like C++. So finally, um, our system that we're building, relational AI, uh, does exactly the same thing. So this is a big trend in databases um, These days we're not the only ones to do this. Uh, Query compilation is the term in the database world where um, the user specifies the query that they want to run and uh, you maybe don't have a specific nugget already pre-built for for the operation, but you actually turn the user's program into a, 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 you turn the user's query into a high level program and then you compile that to disk and then you run it just in the same way we were just talking about. Um, But for traditional database systems, uh, for other database systems that do this sort of thing, maybe I'm not sure if I can remember the names of them, but um, databases isn't my background, but this is all stuff I've learned after joining. Um, uh, the, the way this is done is, 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 is actually like you compile the user's query into a C++ program, and then you write that C++ program to a file, and then you call GD, uh, a GCC, and you have GCC compile that C++ file into a program, and then you run that program over the user's data, and then you throw the program away, and then you send the data back, and that's like just what you do every time the user issues a query. And so uh, this gets us to the second reason that we chose to use Julia. Um, and this is because we also want to build a runtime compilation engine that can compile the user's queries just in time, just ahead of time to, to, to take advantage of all the context that we know about the user's data and the user's uh, query. And instead of having to build all that infrastructure ourselves, we just let Julia do it for us. So um, we, uh, we not only, used the Julia language to build our database management system. But then also at runtime, when the user gives us a query, we compile that query into Julia. And so, so we, we target Julia as our as our compiled uh, language. And then we let Julia compile that at, at the last moment all the way down to, to, to machine code, just like it would normally. So uh, hopefully that's a lot of information, but.
2: Nathan, just a thing to clarify. Uh, yeah. the, the process you described where, you know, you. Emit a C++ program that you then send to GCC. That's what Redshift does. Uh, so some some of the people listening to this podcast might know Redshift. It's uh, Amazon's data uh, warehousing database. Uh, most databases actually interpret the query. They don't even. Okay. It. So, and they suffer from you know the all the ensuing uh, performance problems that you have when you're interpreting, which is what you see, for example, in native Python code that doesn't plus it's interpreted and so-
1: that's right. Yeah, you're right. I, I was already giving maybe too much credit to the to the standard databases out there. That's right. So so like I think most databases you could think of them as a, exactly like you said they're they're like a Python. So you issue your query and they're interpreting it just like Python interprets it. But the hope is that the most important work that you're doing in your query happens to hit these fast paths that they've already compiled a, a, an efficient nugget for. Um, and, and that works really great, but the moment that you want to do a more interesting query that, that doesn't fit within one of those pre-compiled fast paths, you're, you're suddenly slow and you don't know why. And it's very difficult to understand the, the performance trade off. And so, uh, we don't have any of those problems because fundamentally, foundationally we're built on this, um, just ahead of time compilation dynamic specialization like Julia is doing, which is really cool.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. And it, it is nice that, you know, when you spend, for example, someone like me who basically spends 95% of his time, I'm gonna say analyzing data, but it's more like pretty much just organizing it and around and just trying yeah, to figure sure, out sure. like how to even uh, organize it and plotting it and things like that. But um, there are a lot of elements in, in sort of the data, we'll just say handling process that um, people who are just simply oriented towards the analysis of the data um, Essentially, we have to take them for granted. And as you said, it is something where essentially we write up what we want, we let it fly, and we hope that whatever we want is actually conducive to computational efficiency, and we are pleasantly surprised at moments that it is, or alternatively, we don't even think to wonder at all. Um, and then the times when it suffers, we sort of just take that as you know a fact of life and um it it is really nice that there are these peripheral and support elements um and there there are strong computational reasons why these challenges arise um and of course we can't expect you know every data analyst every data scientist every statistician to appreciate the full depth of these problems but at the same time it is nice to recognize that they are there and that we have you know friends out there like you guys who are actively trying to solve these problems and interfacing with the data in a way that we will frankly would actually prefer not to even bother thinking think about we'd like to spend our time focusing on other things and have you guys handle that stuff um and so uh that that is very helpful i'm one one question that i'm curious about is um because you know we, we have talked quite a bit about what you know the user might want uh, who are uh if you don't mind me asking who are the users like who, who who are sort of the use cases where they can really make the most of this Most of
2: our customers are ultimately going to be big companies, so we're working with a very large retailer uh, that's using uh, some of our technology to uh, enhance search and recommendation on their website. Uh, This is a top five largest retailer in the US. Uh, We're working with a large uh, software company that develops uh, software for taxes, for taxation, and the software is uh, used by some of the largest uh, uh, companies in the world. We're working with Uh, uh, companies that are in the Fortune 100 that have hard problems around uh, fraud detection and around uh, um, uh, infrastructure management, uh, connecting with their consumers. So at the uh, the corporate level, so those are our customers. Now, inside those corporations, we're working with technical people who uh, come from three communities. They're uh, business analysts and and people well-grounded in SQL and they want SQL and tables and you know, their favorite business intelligence tool, be itool like Tableau or, uh, or Excel or something like that. Uh, we have another community of data scientists that are, uh, you know, very much about uh, tensors and linear algebra and notebooks and using things like that. And there's a third co- uh, community of uh, people who like to use uh, graph technologies and they like to think in terms of graphs and uh, navigational uh, query languages, and ontology modeling environments, and so on. So from a technical perspective, you have those three users. And from a business perspective, you have uh, large corporations that are um, trying to improve decision-making in some way or automate decision-making in some way uh, inside their uh, companies.
0: Yeah, I really like that the idea, um, again, that um, there are so many services that are popping up to help, uh, for example, various uh people around the sort of data scientist data analysis area um while we're while we're at it um should we talk maybe a bit more about knowledge graphs and uh, what people are trying to precisely resolve with those issues and what what are some of the challenges too
2: yeah, so knowledge graphs became a thing in 2012. Uh, Google announced uh, the Google Knowledge Graph on um, May 16, uh, 2012, which happens to be my birthday, uh, with a blog uh, article about things not strings. And the idea is that you start to sort of manage information in a, uh, in a more structured, database type way. Uh, and the Google Knowledge Graph is actually deeply baked in a lot of things that uh, Google does. The search engine, when you search for a city or a person or a university or whatever, you will often see a, a a box appear on the right-hand side of the page that will tell you for a person when they were born, when they died, how many children they had, and other information that uh, basically is a result of running a query on a knowledge graph, which is, as Nathan said, is just a database uh, that's structured in a certain way and giving you back the results. Uh, but uh, the Google uh, Virtual Assistant and many of the Google services also incorporate uh, knowledge graph. Um, Amazon has the, uh, and talks uh, very loudly about the Amazon product graph and product knowledge graph. Uh, They also use that as a technology that underpins many of the things that you do, not just search and recommendations on their website, but Alexa, Prime, Uh, if they, for example, sell you a CD, Taylor Swift, uh, the knowledge graph contains information about the CD and the songs and so on, but they also know about Taylor Swift, the person, uh, where she was born, and uh, you know other things uh, uh, about her. Apple, of course, has uh, Siri, and uh, the if you go look at Apple job postings, you'll see that they're hiring for product managers and developers on the uh, Siri knowledge graph. When you ask Siri, "How's the weather outside?", it's actually taking that speech and translating it into a query that runs against the knowledge graph, uh, and gives you you know uh, the answer to your question. And of course, you can ask somewhat involved questions, and it connects the dots. But in the end, it needs to be able to answer your question. And that question is translated into a structured query that runs against the knowledge graph. Uh, Microsoft has the LinkedIn knowledge graph. They call it the economic graph. They have the uh, Bing Sartori uh, graph, which underlies their search engine. They have the Office 365 knowledge graph. They have the academic knowledge graph. Uh, and you um, are starting to see sort of recent trends towards you know Facebook talking about the knowledge graph, IBM talking about the knowledge graph, eBay talking about the knowledge graph. And and so on. So there are a lot of different uses and this sort of this theme is emerging and we think knowledge graphs are the foundation for um, You know, doing uh, artificial intelligence in general in in the enterprise. And we think it's actually the foundation for, uh, you know, the software 2.0 movement. Uh, We think in the future um, Software services or components or functions will not just be written by hand by programmers. Many of those components will be learned like uh, Google Translate, uh, went from uh, being a million lines of C++ code to being 500 lines of Python that run a script on TensorFlow that basically learns mappings from any language to any other language. Uh, Or if they're not learned, if the components are not learned, they'll be declared. Uh, You will just sort of say, this is what I want. And as uh, Nathan said earlier, when you ask a database, like give me all the customers that are in the Northeast who have a middle initial X, who I visited my website uh, twice in the last four weeks. Uh, you're not really specifying how you're going. You want that answer. You just say what you want, and so more and more uh, of these services and software components are going to be written declaratively, and uh, and of course that makes them you know easier to build, easier to maintain, easier to evolve. Uh, and historically, we haven't been able to declare as many of our software to components because the declarative languages out there have either been not expressive enough. Like SQL, you can't express everything that you want in SQL. Um, SQL doesn't even capture a polynomial time algorithms. Uh, Or they're not performant enough. Uh, You just needed to be able to tell the computer exactly how to answer a question because on its own, it's not going to be able to figure out how to get you the answer efficiently. Okay, And so with a combination of the algorithms we've developed and the Julia uh, that helps us abstract away or, uh, um, uh, or compile away, I should say, all the abstraction, So you start off with a very high level declarative statement and instead of interpreting your way to an answer, you just compile it down to Julia, which then compiles down to machine code and you can get the answer to a very, very tricky question very, very quickly because Julia made the cost of the abstraction go away, okay? So I answered more than your question about what are knowledge graphs, but I was trying to show you examples and show you why we think there's there's a trend towards having a knowledge graph layer in everybody's footprint and, and over time, more and more capability and software will be developed with a knowledge graph as a foundation, uh, because knowledge graphs make it easier to learn software components and makes it uh, make it easier to use uh, to declare uh, the components that you want to build. And, and uh, you know, once you declare them, uh, they're reactive and and so on and so forth. So.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, you did bring up some what I think are some of the most interesting prospects for not just uh, like machine learning, but software in general. Um, I think the sort of software two issue is extremely interesting. So Nathan, uh, now just so you don't leave that one person hanging, um, what was that third reason that you just just got to get off your chest?
1: Yeah, no, I think it's. Uh, uh, we'll go quickly, but just um, we. So Moham was just talking about how uh, a lot of our smarts uh, in the in the product that we're building come from the algorithms that our um, that that our, our our colleagues have actually been uh, uh, working together with uh, academics for ten years or more now on, um, which really. Uh, make this kind of optimization possible where we can um, figure out how to turn your declarative program into a a program that can be executed quite quickly in many cases. And so a lot of what's going on here is actually really novel and interesting algorithms. And so we employ a bunch of mathematicians and algorithmists, algorithmists, I don't know what even the word is there. Um, Algorithms people. And for them, Julia has been, I'm sorry, you're on mute again.
0: I believe they go by algaes. Algaes, yes. Yeah, I think, I think uh, it's algaes. You, just, you leave them in the sun, you give them nutrients, and eventually they, uh, you can just skim them off the water. And, that is not
1: wrong. Yeah, the the exactly. Um, wrong. So, yes, our, uh, our, our algae friends. Um, so, for them, I think uh, Julia has been a real joy, and that's been, that's been one of my favorite parts about joining this company, um, um, uh, to see the way that they use Julia. So, I, I think um, – I've heard Python described in the past as pseudocode that you can execute. It's like executable pseudocode. It's, you know, it looks just exactly like what you wanna say and then you can run it. Um, I would say that also is true about Julia, but uh, I've heard Julia described rather as executable math. Um, so I think it really, um, with even little things like just support for the Unicode characters, uh, so they can, write their, you know, the, they, they can write the same exact, um, you know they read a paper and it has an interesting algorithm in it and they, you, know, you can just rewrite the math from the paper and it, and it basically just executes in Julia the same as it would in MATLAB or uh, Mathematica, which are two um, widely used, mathematic-focused, uh, high-level programming languages, both of which suffer from being really slow, just like uh, the same problem that data science has with Python. Um, so, uh, so this is the other angle, I think, that why we found such joy using Julia here is we have a bunch of mathematicians, and uh, I think it's really fun to see them um, be so productive in a way that I can't imagine they would have uh, had the same success if, if we were having to struggle through C sharp or C plus plus, you know, you, all this, the, just the programming gets in the way of the ideas. Um, and I really don't feel like that's true with, um, with working with Julia here, which has been really nice. Um, you know, native support for tensors, native support for arrays and matrix multiplication, um, uh, mathematical symbols, um, and also I think uh, multiple dispatch, which is something that you'll hear Julie people talk about a lot, but it's really esoteric to outsiders um, is this idea that's really ca- uh, closely maps with math. Um, and the idea here, if I have like a couple minutes, is just that um, in traditional object oriented programming languages like Java and, and, and maybe Python, uh, to some extent, um, uh, there's this idea that an object owns its methods. So like you can have, an abstract type, which is like an animal. And then you have a dog, which is a type of animal, and a cat, which is a type of an animal, and all animals can make a noise. And so dogs bark and cats meow. Um, But the observation is that in mathematics, uh, with most interesting operations, there's no owner of that operation. Uh, It's really uh, what kind of operation should happen depends on everybody who participates. So um, if you're adding together four numbers, and three of them are integers, and one of them is a float, the the integer doesn't own the plus operator any more than the float owns the plus operator. There's really no true owner. And so, um, this object oriented dispatch that we were just talking about is, is, is sometimes called polymorphism or, or dynamic dispatch. And, uh, in Julia, they call it multiple dispatch where the, you choose which type of plus to do based on what all the runtime arguments are. And so it, this lends itself very well to writing mathematical operations. So you might say, um, hey, when I'm when I'm taking the Jacobian of a matrix or I don't, I don't know linear algebra, but when you're doing some linear algebra operations and one of your things is a is a is a, a dense vector and the other ones a, a sparse uh, symmetric, you know, upper triangle vector, um, you should do this thing. And if there are different kinds of matrices, you should do this other thing. And um, and you just write that once in Julia, you know, you don't, you don't have to figure anything else out. You just say, hey, here's how this operation works when these are my types. Um, and uh, so that sort of mathematical fluidity, I think has been really, really a lot of fun to write Julia in. So that's the last thing I want to say on that.
0: No, that, that definitely is a really cool distinction. And I do appreciate that you've um, sort of held our hand through some of these more computational issues. Cause you know, when you aren't quite uh, familiar with them it's a huge amount to you know obviously it's yeah. multiple fields in its own right um yeah
1: actually one, one more thing on that i think i think what i think the reason that julia has found such such success in the scientific world is that um you know it feels a lot like python and you can just sort of start using it without caring about anything we just talked about right it's it's a it's an easy high-level language you can just write interesting database uh, d- data science uh, tasks you're like i just want to I just want to do some machine learning on my data, party. like,
0: want to party yeah, my I just data. want to
1: open scikit learn, get a, you know, get a, a linear regression and move on. But then when you do hit those cases that are actually the pain points, like we talked about earlier, excuse me, and you don't know what to do. Um, in those times you can then go and learn a tiny bit more computer science in this one moment, you know, just for the one specific problem you have. And Julia lends itself so nicely to that. So I think it's a very friendly uh, introduction into the gate, but it, it scales, linear infinitely with the complexity of the tasks that you want to do. So in those places where you have a hard problem, you can either find a package that solves it, or you can write a package that solves it, or you can write code yourself. And uh, that, that's something that, that you don't get in most other high-level languages.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Nathan and Mom, I really appreciate you guys coming on today. I know we didn't really plan to go on like a tutorial on some of these issues, but I do think it is really helpful to have, you know, technical experts like yourself come and, you know, hold their hand and walk us through some of these things because, uh, when you when, when you focus so much just on the data analysis, you take certain other aspects for granted. It becomes a bit of a mystery why certain things are odd or not working out or suboptimal. And it, it is nice having those um, things being presented to you pleasantly as opposed to, I don't know, someone like a, a sneering database uh, engineer or something like that, although most database engineers are real nice people. But um, I really appreciate you guys coming on and just Introducing some of these new ideas, and I think this also doubles down on some of the uh, topics that uh, Jane Harriman was d- discussing about some of the advantages of these other languages. So, um, thanks for um, for both coming on. It'd be great to have you guys come on uh, when, later when we have this more like full stack data science talk. And again, just you know, just simple learning examples to start, you know, building those little neural connections between these other aspects with uh, the databases that we usually take for granted. Um, now, of course, uh if you haven't had enough of Nathan, uh he's gonna be in JuliaCon 2020. So, um, which is again, it's a huge conference, it's free, it's great value, it's a really fantastic community. Um, so don't miss out on that. Uh go uh uh the sign-up link for JuliaCon 2020 will be in the description below. So if you want more of Nathan, um the crowd cries out for Nathan, there's your chance. Also, uh, just as a side note, if you go to Nathan's website, that's Nathan Daily, you can, and I'll actually, I'll just link that one too while I'm at it, you um, can see some really cool environmental applications. So if you're interested in some some more like the climate study type work and um, just generally cool applications, uh, Nathan has worked on a very broad range of uh, different applications and just cool tech topics. So he he is a full stack, uh, a full stack worker in many ways, but I think I've said enough. Uh, Nathan and Moham, thanks so much for your time today.
2: Thank you, Glenn.
1: Yeah. Well, and actually, just want to also plug. that I think Moham's going to be giving a talk at JuliaCon too, so you can. Oh, catch you bo- are. You can catch yeah. both of us. Uh, yeah.
0: But especially
2: talks from Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> from people from uh, relationally
0: at JuliaCon. So. Sweet. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, and it'll be. It'll will they be on the same issues, or will you be talking about two your separate right. issues?
2: Those different different topics.
0: Perfect. All right. Cool. Well. Catch both Nathan and Malum at JuliaCon 2020. All right, well, guys, thanks so much. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks. Bye bye.
0: Hey, folks, it's Glenn. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Pod of Sleepyus. If so, please consider leaving a like, a comment, and hitting that subscribe and bell button. For a small channel, and every bit helps. If you have a department, a lab, or even just friends who'd like this episode, definitely forward along. I don't have any of those things, but if you do, you should definitely celebrate by sending them an episode. We've got plenty of episodes on healthcare topics, particularly in data science and machine learning, so check out the other episodes on the channel or some of the playlists. You can also check out our website to join our mailing list or see our sponsors. Thanks so much to our sponsors for their support. And while the views discussed on the show are undoubtedly scintillating, they don't necessarily represent the views of our sponsors, the speaker's employer, my views, your views, my neighbor's cat's views your cat's views, or anyone else not saying the words. In fact, they might not even represent the speaker's views by the time you're hearing it, so be sure to subscribe in case they come back onto the show to change their mind. See what I did there? Thanks again.